This is the fifth part of Coherence, the environmental studies uh, special series. Andrew and Amanda, take it away. Hi there, Hi listeners. there listeners. Welcome, Welcome to, to Coherence. Coherence. <laughs> My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, York University Commons. Our thanks to Niche for funding this pilot series and Nature's Past for hosting us. Each episode will showcase thoughts from the York University Faculty of Environmental Studies describing the intersection of culture and environment. Welcome to the second part of our two-part episode focusing on environmental literature and politics. We've been coming at this issue through the lens of the 2011 conference Green Words, Green Worlds, Environmental Literatures and Politics in Canada, which brought together poets, scholars, writers, and environmental activists to talk about the importance of literary works and creative writing for an engaged eco-political practice. Once again, we sat down with conference organizers Kate Sandilands and Ella Soper. My name is Kate Sandilands. I'm Ella Soper. To talk about their experience imagining, planning, and executing a conference of this kind. We've been using this discussion as a framework for the episode, departing from it to bring you excerpts live from the conference floor. So let's pick up where we left off last time. I'm doing my master's at SFU, and now I'm towards the end of my degree, and I've moved towards Aboriginal literature and uh, also Asian-Canadian literature. One of the big questions is, how do we think about the long term? And the philosophical traditions and the religious traditions and the other traditions, political traditions, have a great deal of difficulty thinking about the medium to the long term. They're good at the immediate and they're good at the eternal, but they're not very good at this sort of medium term. I do feel that the poetics and the politics should go hand in hand, that poetics is political by its very nature, and that, that, and that celebration, paying attention, which is very much the act of, uh, of a good naturalist, uh, in itself uh, uh, encourages love and care for the natural environment. And the metaphors and symbols that they use are under a lot of stress, because those metaphors and symbols really depend upon the idea that the mountains and the rivers will remain even though the state changes or seed time and harvest will not fail and these kinds of things. And so when those get under stress, it's very hard to decide how to handle the metaphors and symbols. I'm here because I really love poetry. That's it's awesome. A, I'm a bit of a dork, but it's absolutely true. And um, there's something that it does to my heart and to my mind that just opens my thought channels and really inspires me. But I still feel like an imposter a little bit when I come to things like this because I'm still learning so much. That's um, okay. All of us do. Yeah. Everybody does. But I think what I really like about this conference is the interdisciplinarity of it because one major problem that's still going on with... Uh, the academy or English programs in general is how specific they are and how you're not collaborative research isn't as recognized in general I would say right. as uh, as just solitary monograph monograms you know um, major solo books or whatever so it's really cool to see that there are people here from communications environmental studies I'm from English um, and to talk with them and see the different perspectives on similar things. And I think one of the reasons why 
green words, green worlds, environmental literature, and the poetic struggle, why it's so important is because it's actually trying to find a way of dealing with new metaphors and rethinking about old metaphors in this area. Using an approach which is too uh, involved in feelings of guilt, uh, feelings of condemnation, feelings of urgency, if, if, if that's one's only approach, it can create an air of negativity. I was sort of half-jokingly last night using a parallel to kinds of radical evangelical Christianity where, <laughs> where you know, there's, there's the guilt trip and the going to hell trip yeah. and, and all of this. And where is the love? Where is the passion? Where is the celebration? You, you, need, you need both. You need all of this working together in sync. And I think the more approaches, the, the better. So to be here, to be around poets and people who filter life uh, through creative writing, and especially in my case, of course, my dorky poetry love, um, it's really inspiring. Uh, my name is Brian Bartlett. My name is Catherine Komorowski, and I'm um, an MES student at York University in the Faculty of Environmental Studies. Hi, I'm Peter Timmerman. Yeah, I'm Ben, Ben Gerls. And what was unique about the conference, too, was the way in which it brought together um, those poetic voices um, and more generally, you know, creative writing with a more academic um, practice. The public poetry panel, which took place on the first night of the conference and included Brian Bartlett, Armand Garnet Rufo, and Rita Wong, was an opportunity to enact the types of poetic interventions that Ella had been describing. Each of the poets on stage read some of their creative writing, described their academic work, and answered questions from the audience. The juxtaposition of academic practice with poetry, as well as different types of poetic forms with one another, was incredible and demanded a kind of audience participation that felt different from other keynotes at other conferences. We had an opportunity to speak with Brian, Armand, and Rita after their presentation. We asked each of them how they imagined their work, particularly their creative practice as a political act. We've juxtaposed those interviews with selections from the presentation itself. Here's a taste of what they had to say. So Brian Bartlett uh, teaches in the Department of English at St. Mary's University in Halifax. Brian has contributed in many, many important ways to environmental and other literary communities in Canada. Brian has also, in the last year and a half, developed a wonderful practice of routinely posting nature writing on Facebook. As someone lucky enough to be his friend, I've been treated to small but regular doses of exquisitely wrought con observation and meditation amidst all of the chatter and the advertising that takes up most of the Facebook screen. Brian is going to speak to us today about that project and about the use of the internet for a poetic practice that speaks explicitly to tensions between the delights of attentive nature poetry and the political imperatives of environmental concern or, as E.B. White once put it, the tensions between savoring and saving the world. The title of Brian's presentation tonight is Bittersweet Sweet, Bittersweet Sweet, The Poetics and Politics of Writing a Nature Calendar. June 10th. In the thin rain, Norway maples dropped, 
their two-winged fruit onto the sidewalks. At 16, I wrote a love poem comparing such Samaras to the words of a girl who decades later died by her own hand. Then a song sparrow's lone voice takes me farther back to the days when I first read a 75-cent paperback of Silent Spring. The Samaras shine in this sun shower, but some bird might sing bitter, sweet, sweet, bitter, sweet, sweet, at the last ALEC conference, I heard you read some of your, uh, your Facebook uh, update uh, poetry. Um, and I'm, I've been sort of thinking about it and wondering how you see your work as, uh, as part of politics, as a political process. Do you see your work as, as overtly political? And I, it's, it's really evolved quite organically. I haven't, uh, I haven't tried to overthink it because I wanted it to evolve in the various directions that it has evolved in. Coming to this conference actually sort of gave me a chance to become a little more self-conscious about, in a good way, about what I've been doing and to observe. I'm, I'm far enough along in the project now that I, I don't think being more self-conscious about it will be uh, too damaging to right. the process because uh, so much of its character has been defined already. Um, I think because of the what I called sort of the encyclopedic nature of it, where I'm numerically writing so many pieces, maybe up to 500 pieces, and then selecting 365 to uh, follow through uh, a semi-fictional year that will really combine two years into one, that is, interweave them into one, not follow them sequentially, obviously. Uh, In doing that, in simply living, you're bound to reflect upon nature and experience nature in a, a, a vast number of ways. And some of those are ways of uh, appreciation on, on, uh, in the field, in observations. Uh, they have a quality of celebration, of honor, of uh, fascination. Uh, there are other times when I might do something that's picking up on an article in a newspaper that relates to uh, an issue. Uh, there, there are complementaries that were written on the earthquakes in Japan, a couple that were written on the um, the Gulf uh, oil spill from a year and a half ago. Sometimes I'm writing on issues of agricultural or food that have political dimensions to, to them. But I think that it all, in a sense, either implicitly or explicitly, is, is within a political realm. In his poetry collection, Moosewood Sandhills, Tim Lilburn says, looking with care and desire seemed a political act. My hunch is that our hopes for raising green consciousness in many children and adults begin more in the sensuous, the feel of wind on our faces and water around our feet, the sight of a fox fleeing into underbrush, the sound of a bird owl connecting us to the uncanny, than in consciousness raising newspaper or TV items or environmental bloggers' postings or public speeches. This isn't to say that the overtly political isn't valuable and crucial. 
only that a grounding of one's passions in the actual world of earth, air, fire, and water, and a love of its pied beauties, never to be grasped diversity and tremendous vitality, are key for any lasting commitment to curbing our lamentable human tendencies to misrepresent, abuse, truncate, and poison the source and home of our own being. Recently, I came across a statement by E.B. White from the 1960s made in a very different context, American International Policies, that could neatly summarize the conflict felt by many nature writers. I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve or save the world and a desire to enjoy or savor the world. Since only human vanity could lead us to believe we have the power to single-handedly improve or save the world, which is infinitely vaster than our technologies, I'd like to replace words, uh, White's word choices with something like respect and, more active, defend. The quotation from White appears to set up a division between enjoyment and advocating. Maybe in the end we don't have to feel so torn since our most creative, constructive approach might be to keep reminding ourselves of the interconnection between the two, between sensuous, poetic attentiveness and the enacting of environmental ethics. Part of such ethics is attentiveness, awareness, and appreciation that keep our talk of nature from being joyless or too abstract. To say that artists are artists when they do their art and polemicists when they are citizens is misleading and oversimplified. It's more useful to say that the artist's, citizens' activities and voices vary. For instance, along with description and celebration, the nature calendar sometimes rises to speak its mind. September 2nd. Wanting to prove the harbor is clean in yellow and black swim shorts, the mayor wades in, then goes underwater. Reporters and other citizens gaze. The new sewage treatment plant costing $54 million broke down last year. Bad press. To drown bad press with good press, the mayor gets wet in his bumblebee-colored suit. In the water, he keeps his lips shut perfectly tight. (laughs) February the 10th. So happy to bring this abundance home. Then, in our Nova Scotian kitchen... The labels say the strawberries are from Florida, the raspberries, California, the blueberries, Chile, and the blackberries, Mexico. Guiltily, I toss them together for our waffles and fetch the bottle reading Pure Nova Scotian Maple Syrup, Westershire NS. Like locavores thickened tears, the syrup runs down the hills of berries. <laughs> One of our other speakers tonight, Rita Wong, begins a poem with the sentence, Faith hides in little pockets like the heart and the throat. At the risk of making too extravagant a metaphor, I'm hoping that the nature calendar will eventually be like a coat with 365 little pockets of faith. November 12th. In a bookstore's parking lot, the Royal Astronomical Society set up three telescopes. We squinted at Jupiter and a few of its many moons, because Ganymede is crater-colored, Io volcano-parked, and Europa ice-wrapped, because Jupiter is five times farther from us than the sun, and a thousand Earths could fit into the ball of gases that it is, 
More than autumn air must have chilled us during the drive home. Hold me. Our next speaker this evening is Armand Garnett Ruffo. Uh, Armand teaches in the Department of English Language and Literature at Carleton University in Ottawa. Um, Strongly influenced by his Anishinaabe roots and traditions, he is the author of numerous critical and creative works that speak especially to important questions about Aboriginal literatures, identities, and cultures, including what we are calling here environmental concerns, but he might not. Throughout his critical, biographical, theatrical, and poetic work, Armand raises questions about the role of imagination in telling us who we are, including who we are in relation to the multiple other than humans with whom we inhabit the world. The power of the imagination, and specifically of stories, to tell us who we are is a concept that Aboriginal writers and storytellers have amply explored through their own cultural worldviews, including in relation to land. Armand's presentation today continues in this tradition and is entitled, We Are What We Imagine. I would like to uh, first of all acknowledge the uh, Mississauga people whose uh, land we're on, who are also uh, part of the greater uh, Anishinaabe nation. And with that, I would like to start. We are what we imagine. Years ago, Wilfred Peltier, an Odawa thinker, wise man, and mentor to me, told me a little story that I'd like to share with you. It was about Dan Pine, an Anishinaabe Ojibwe elder from Garden River up near Sault Ste. Marie. I should say that Dan Pine was a traditional pipe carrier and a very and very respected across Indian country. His name is still mentioned to this day. Anyway, this was back in the 1970s, and Wilfred was a fairly young man at the time. He had organized a meeting of various ecumenical leaders out in Morley, Alberta. During one of the meetings, where there were a lot there, where there was a lot of discussion by various religious denominations, Dan got up and addressed the group. Although he spoke English, he felt that what he wanted to say was best said in his own Ojibwe language, Anishinaabe Moyen. And because there were people gathered from various communities, each speaking different languages, he asked Wilfred if he would translate for him. Wilfred accepted, but not without without some trepidation, because although he spoke Odawa fluently, which is close to Ojibwe, and certainly understood Ojibwe, he was worried about making mistakes. It was arranged then that while Dan spoke, Wilford would hold on to his coat, which he would tug if he was having problems. Dan had just spoken his first sentence when Wilford started tugging. He was afraid that he had misinterpreted him. Sensing the worry in Wilford's desperate glance, Dan Pine assured him with a quick nod that he had understood correctly. With this quick sign of reassurance, he continued to speak. As Wilford remembered, as Wilfred remember it, remembered it, this is what he said. We have been undressing too long. It is time to put our clothes back on. When the knock comes to your door, you will not be there to answer it. You take the water that is still, 
and the water that flows and all the things in the water and bring them back here within you where they belong. Then you take the land and the rocks and the trees and all those animals who live in those trees and the insects, bring them all back too inside of you. And then you take the birds and the air and the clouds and the stars and the sky and the whole universe and that too belongs inside of you. And then we take all the people of the world and every language in the world and bring that too inside of you where it rightfully belongs. When you have done, when you have done that, you will be fully clothed. And when the knock comes to your door, you'll be there to answer it. And each foot will know exactly where to fall and you cannot make a mistake. Wilford went on to say that when Dan finished speaking, he sat down and a silence fell upon all those who had gathered. <clears throat> Wilford never asked him what exactly he had meant by the words that he had spoken that day, but he told me that he had spent a great deal of time thinking about them over the years. He told me that he thought Dan was saying that it was only by returning all that we perceive to be out there in the world to our innermost being that we are able to recognize our interconnectedness to all that surrounds us. To put our clothes back on, in other words, is to return to our original completeness, our total inclusiveness in the world. I too have thought about Dan Pine's words over the years and I've concluded that Wilford's observation leads logically to another question. How does one go about putting one's clothes back on. How does one become connected? Uh, my name is Armand Garnet Rufo. I am a Anishinaabe uh, writer and poet, and um, I'm certainly concerned about the environment. It's uh, fundamental to my culture and my uh, belief system. And uh, right now that we face some, uh, some uh, extremely important issues like the Keystone Pipeline and water issues. Um, uh, the government, uh, I was reading just the other day that the government is uh, considering selling our water and all these, all, these, all these kind of current issues that are going on that are dealing with the environment. But, so I'm trying to um, provide another perspective to it through my writing. There is no denying that the power of imagination to create stories that shape our lives is not only remarkable, but it has existed as long as humanity and language have existed. And it has persisted, even with all the technological adva advances humankind has made in the last 30 years, there is no sign of our need for story letting up. Certainly the forms of storytelling have evolved, but if anything, our need is as strong as ever. It's been said that story is not only humankind's most prolific art form, but it rivals all activities, work, play, exercise, eating, even sex, for our waking hours. Every day we tell stories about events in our lives and listen to stories about someone else's life. We tell and take in stories as much as we sleep, and even then we dream stories. Why? Why is so much of our lives spent inside narrative? And what power does it have over us? What is it that makes stories necessary if a vital part of living? Is, why is the human impulse to tell stories so powerful? It is, a coping is it a coping mechanism? It is, a, is it a survival instinct, the same kind of instinct that drives a bird thousands of kilometers south? <laughs> 
These and other such questions can certainly, we can certainly speculate about. But what we knew, do know about story, story is that it has always been a primary way in which we explain our existence, the world, and our place in it. Now you are probably wondering what this has to do with Dan Pine's words, or the environment for that matter. Well, let's go a step further in connecting the imagination to the power of words and to story and to the oral tradition in particular. For it is the traditional narratives, songs, and ceremonies of the First Nations people that are no less than receptacles of the imagination, receptacles that hold traditional knowledge, a way of seeing and being in the world. In this regard, First Nations stories have always been connected to the power of the word and language and accordingly hold real power in the life of the community. They were and are a way to maintain social cohesion, stability within the community, and have fundamentally two functions, to teach and to entertain. The Abenaki poet and storyteller Joseph Brujak makes a good point when he says that the, te the teaching role of stories is important to remember. Though the plot of a story may be delightful, if the person who retells it is not aware of the message or messages the story is meant to convey, then they may, as far as the story's traditional purposes go, destroy the story by leaving out things or changing details they think inconsequential. And of course, translation is an important and complex issue in itself. And so I have selected two stories in which the informant and the translator are identified. The story that Armand told us was... The Epic of Kayak, the longest story ever told by my people, by the Inuit storyteller Leila Kiana Oman. With irony in mind, due to time constraints, we're only representing excerpts of the story. To Kayak's surprise, the caribou had stopped and were waiting for him. <clears throat> they looked beautiful, their heads held high and very grandly. Kayak stood for a moment, very puzzled, and when they failed to move as he approached them, one of the largest came forward to meet him. Do you wish to become one of us? he asked Kayak. Kayak thought about, thought about it and thought it would be fun to be one of them for a time. I think it would be wonderful, Kayak answered. It is not thrilling to be a caribou. You see, we are hunted for food by many animals and men. We are all on the alert always. If I may, I would like to become one of you and go wherever you go. I do not care what happens to me. Knowing that his soul could never die, Kayak begged. All right then, don't say that I did not warn you, the caribou man said. One hot afternoon, he was resting on the ground. All at once, the herd jumped up on their feet and thundered past him. Kayak knew they were startled by a prowler, and he stood up quickly and tried to run. He stumbled over a stone and landed on his chest. On his feet again, he made an effort, but he was lurching sideways, off balance, and in a few yards, he tripped and rolled on his back. The idea of being a target was no comfort to his shaking body and pounding heart. Somehow at last he caught up with the others who were all standing watching his approach. Once more, many days later, the caribou were being approached by a man who was a great hunter. They were not aware of him until he was close. Suddenly, the man with the spear in his hand was swiftly running in their direction. They were, they were getting up to run, but the earth tilted in, in, in their sight toward the man. 
Now within range for his spear, the man made his kill. Terrifyingly close, Kayak saw the hunter rise with his spear in the air again and point it in his direction. But Kayak was not touched. Another caribou running a little before him went down. Kayak leaped over the fallen caribou. Finally and at last, the earth righted itself. The big tundra became flat. Not far away, they stopped, panting, tongues hanging out, and they looked back at the man who is now sitting beside the fallen caribou, resting. After this terrifying experience, Kayak transforms himself back into a human being. The epic continues after this episode as Kayak continues on his adventures. But by this time, the listener or reader has been left breathless, like Kayak himself, and has learned something profound about the caribou. We have literally run in the hooves of the caribou and have learned that, like humans, they too have feelings. Through the power of story, we have experienced their fear, panic, and pain. For a hunting society, this story must have had great significance because it is no less than a call for empathy and respect for the very animal that provides the community with life. How could someone go about killing indiscriminately after such an out-of-body experience. How different our world would be if we too would run with the caribou. Now I'm sure some of you are saying to yourselves, but it is just a story. To this I will add that everything is a story, and a more accurate response should be, not that it is just a story, but rather, is this a story for me? As I thought about these stories and others, I have I've heard and read, and the, and the power they must have had in the community in which they originated. A window opened, and I started to understand what the Ojibwe elder Dan Pine was getting at when he asked Wilford to translate for him. What he was challenging his audience to understand. I would like to close now with another passage from the Kiowa writer N. Scott Mumaday that, that I think goes far in helping us take that first step. Once in his life, a man or a woman ought to concentrate his mind upon the remembered earth. He ought to give himself up to a particular landscape in his experience, to look at it from many angles, as, as many angles as he can, to wonder about it, to dwell upon it. He ought to imagine that he touches it with his hands at every season and listens to the sounds that are made upon it. He ought to imagine the creatures that are there and all the faintest emotions in the wind. He ought to recollect the glare of noon and all the colors of dawn and dusk. To this I would add, then, that once it is all back inside himself and he is wearing it like a set of clothes, he should tell himself a story about it so we might not forget. Thank you. Our final speaker this evening is Rita Wong. Rita teaches in the Department of Critical and Cultural Studies at the Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver. In her creative and her scholarly work, and across her poetry, teaching, and formidable activism, Rita probes and explores the relations among social justice, ecology, poetry, and decolonization. 
For Rita, a truly ecological poetics involves paying attention to the histories embedded in the narratives and systems that structure how we imagine community. The title of Rita's presentation this evening is Listening to and Restoring the Flows that Make Us. I'm wondering specifically about your writing and your eco-critical practice as politics, as overtly political. Can you talk a little bit more about that? In terms of writing itself, I think it's really important to articulate the things that we want and the things that, the values, the ideas, the principles that matter to us. Because um, without that, then you're always reacting against something rather than thinking about what it is you want to embrace or what it is you hope that people will take up. And, and value. My main practice is poetry, but it's becoming increasingly collaborative, and um, I'm, I'm open to wherever it takes me. In my talk last night, I talked a, a little bit about my practice in terms of decolonizing, or as, as one, my work on water is one way of reimagining peace rather than conflict, because historically through hydroelectric dams and through other um, resource extractive projects there's been a structural divide or a structural conflict that's embedded into this history and it's not something that you can just overturn by individual will it's something you really have to think about and and hope that collectively we we think about right and change when you start to track water you realize how interrelated we are on a, on a really really basic way yeah. as a poet and a writer my research starts with listening and with curiosity. Uh, I want to know how poetics can relate to thousands of years of human and non-human activity on this continent. And what do we hear when we listen? What do we learn when we listen? Cultural questions of water have many social and political implications embedded within them. Questions involving whose understanding of water and whose mode of relating and gaining access to it attains dominance is what needs to be highlighted here. As Vandana Shiva has argued, the way water is conceptualized and represented is instrumental in determining who gains access to it and on what terms. This necessarily produces conflict over the meaning and definition of water, a kind of conflict that she describes as water wars, paradigm wars, really, conflicts over how we perceive and experience water. So when I track the flows of the damned water that powers Vancouver, I realize that I have a relationship with the second A, one which I did not choose, but which nonetheless exists. And it's not a personal relationship, but it's a structural one. And it's embedded within the very systems that we live in. And realizing this for me is not about guilt, which is quite useless, but about recognizing how the material, in this case water, links me to these communities that I have not met, but I'm still connected to. I can't change that history, but I do have to figure out how to respond to it. And I can ask what's happening to that community today, what's happening to other northern indigenous communities that continue to protect their traditional lands and waters, and to indigenous peoples wherever I happen to be, for that matter. It's language and writing that allows me to voice uh, my relationship with the unseen, both the streams below and the moist, polluted winds above. Followings water path suggests a way of moving in cycles, not just straight lines, or it challenges us to gather and connect the straight lines back into a circle, a sphere, or a globe. Make space and let the night speak through you. What will the darkness say? Will it sigh the song of night cleaners, the lament of the wrongly imprisoned, the rage of the ragged, the dispossessed? How will the night take you back? Will you be the vessel for earth shatter, hydro poison, ancestral revenge? Perhaps steady weeds growing irrepressibly into the cracks, urban repurposing, 
straddling both the drugs that kill and the ones that heal. The globe moves around the sun, unstoppable, feeding pine trees and the petrostate alike, giving us the days and nights by which to stand with the trees, what the industry calls overburden, or to die more rapidly, more stupidly by peak oil. As rivers and oceans fill with carcinogenic wastes from the petroleum plastic supply chain, the political systems follow, stuffed full of sun corpse and tired old neo-colonial ego that refuses to stop pushing until it reaches the limits of the planet's patience. Near the end of our interview, we asked Kate and Ella to reflect on the conference and tell us how they thought it went. They described the range of responses that they heard from participants at the conference, and they told us why they ended the weekend with creative writing workshops rather than a keynote. And I think it went well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it feels conceited to say I think it went well, but I, I do. People, um, people th- th- there was a... As you say, Amanda, a very wide variety of responses to the general question, what is the relationship between environmental literature and politics or um, uh, literature and environmental politics? Um, And there was such a wide variety of different kinds of enactments that there really was something for everyone. And it was um, intimate. Everyone got a chance to to interact with one another, got uh, got a chance hopefully to see the panels that they were interested in, in attending. Um, and there was really a sense of community, I found, that carried over into the workshops on Sunday. Um, and, and keeping that momentum alive day after day, I think, was a really um, important part of the process and keeping that community going throughout the weekend. And so I think the space uh, was really conducive to that as well, the Gladstone. So we had you know, people staying in the hotel above. We had people congregating there. And sometime after the conference, other people coming and, uh, and connecting. You know? So it was, it was a nice sort of hub for all of, the, for all of this energy and attention. And it took it out of the academy and put it back in the public sphere. And I think that that was also a really symbolic sort of gesture. Yeah. I think the writing workshops went over really very, very well. Um, I, a number of people um, commented on, you know, that was very interesting that that was the final, uh, that was the final activity um, to actually sort of leave with that kind of sense of creative questioning, rather than with a set of, you know, ra- rather than with a keynote who would be, you know, sort of providing a definitive answer. It was an extension of the writing lab, yeah. the sustainable writing lab, and the, the work we've been doing there, um, which has been promoting. Um, creative writing as as a means of fostering awareness and fostering that elasticity of of mind, perhaps, um, um, and by way of yeah promoting the same slow thinking that Kate has been talking about, how writing might itself be be a practice that connects us um, on a more intimate and daily basis with the the kinds of work we do, um, you know, outside of the academy, because so much of our work actually happens, you know, in isolation in front of a computer screen, either in your office or at home. So getting together and connecting with people or going on walks, as many of the workshops did, and taking the, you know, the classroom outside um, and writing in response to things that were encountered on those walks, I think is really important in terms of practicing, um, you know, the values that we're, we're, that we're discussing so often. I think we were also um, selfishly going to demand a lot from our keynotes, <laughs> all of whom were, you know, really, uh, really wonderful poets. 
Um, so I think we, we really wanted to give people the opportunity to engage with their work as, as readers and listeners, but also as co, you know, sort of as co, uh, as, as budding writers themselves. It's mm-hmm. a different kind of relationship, which you know very well, Amanda. As we wrapped up our interview and our discussion about the Green Words, Green World conference came to an end, we asked Kate and Ella the same question we'd asked each of the keynote presenters at the conference last fall. Um, I guess so my last question, unless you have any, um, is the same question that we've asked um, everybody so far, um, and that's how do you see your work as distinctly political, and your your work in particular, I think. I think... Um Writing on the topic of animal extinction is something that very few people want to do. Um, Very few people, I think, want to be reading this genre of literature. Um, But I think it's it's really important that we do, Um, not only by, not only as a means of witnessing by proxy what's happening, um, but also by making people slow down and notice the loss, the, the constant loss um, of, of the diversity of our planet. Uh, this is something that literature has always done, is to commemorate loss in really meaningful ways and to, um, to stage the process of working through loss. And what's interesting about this genre of writing is that there may, in fact, be no way of working through it. It may be a process of resisting consolation and embracing an attitude of militancy instead because um, we can't sit idly by and let one species after another um, become extinct with, without taking notice. And so it gives me, um, you know, a really bittersweet, I guess, sense of satisfaction in the classroom to introduce students to a text that um, makes them aware of a species that is now gone that they'd never heard of before. Um, and to make them then start to care about the other stories that haven't yet been written or have yet to be written, and to um, to encourage them to to think about um, you know what the authors are promoting in terms of reactions to this kind of of loss, um, and and just asking questions and promoting dialogue and promoting that attitude of militancy because I think if literature is not bearing witness to this age of extinctions, I don't know what its purpose is. Um, I'm in the process of, um, it feels like the perpetual process, but I'm in the process of writing a manuscript about uh, uh, Jane Rule, um, who was a, uh, certainly uh, throughout the 80s, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, a very well-known Canadian lesbian novelist and public figure. Um, and I think she embodied a certain kind of, um, she, was a, she was most certainly a, a public intellectual, um, in, in a very important way. Um, not, not in the Massey lecture sense of, of, of public intellectual, but she was a very popular novelist. And she also wrote uh, lot, essays and columns for um, an enormous diver- uh, enormously diverse range of places from uh, Chatelaine to Home and Garden to the body politic, which uh, she wrote a regular column for. That was the, 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 the radical gay periodical uh, in Toronto, which got itself into trouble uh, with the law over and over and over again um, on issues of censorship. Um, so she really wanted her, her literature and her essays to 
reach and constitute a, uh, a public sphere that included um, gay men and lesbians very centrally as, as core members of that public. Um, and I would argue that in, uh, in, in, many of her, in, in many of her novels, less so in her essays, but in many of her novels, there is a very, there's a very ethical relationship to place um, constituted through, um, diverse, through, through, through her, de- uh, her depiction of diverse communities. So my, you know, my work is um, trying to um, tackle, you know, sort of more, more head-on what it means for uh, an author to be a public intellectual, um, and particularly in Rule's case, to be a queer public intellectual. Call to arms. The combine harvester wore him like a loose jacket, a wind-snapped flag, like a rodeo bull wears a cowboy sanded him down until his arms were dusted off, rewritten in fiberglass and hooked script. We were frightened by his make-believe hands, smooth upholstery knuckles, unflinching beach ball smell backed by baked bicycle tires. We were frightened of the fishing trip and the lightning that welded him to the boat. We were frightened of those shoulders retrofitted into clothes hangers for broken handshakes and bear hugs, dialed phones and signatures packed away into boxes for accountants or the poor. We practiced our own substitutions, acting out ghost stories, declaring allegiance to phantom limbs while playing high-leg-kick soccer, awarding exaggerated penalties for handballs where offenders were chicken-winged and forced to pirate copies of hoof-and-mouth disease for overseas quarantined manicurists. We wore hand-me-down turtlenecks and packed scavenged finger food for the sergeant-at-arms. In the saw-toothed canines masticating above us in climax beech-leaf canopies, we saw vestigial forests of terminal arm hair, small sawed melanin huts, knob and kettle country in the vascular ridgelines. We took flu shots to change our appearance on the inside, planted memories of synthetic identities dusted for fingerprints in unauthorized hands. Climbing through polite conversation, we wore nosebleeds to conceal our altitude, fake mustaches to hide the hair lips we affected for counterfeit phonemes and slipped into pairs of scissors hiding in roughhouses built by play-facing dogs in the first draft carbon crystals of burnt-out engine blocks. We raised branches from sticks and trained them into teepees and log houses for bonfires, schooled them in the relative humidities for dry rot. We placed orange peels over our eyes and groped for the light sockets, donned dandelion manes, and crawled through the participle grasses with sextants certifying the sky for seeds. Having had our wrists slapped, we grew polycarbonate cups out of sight in the carpal tunnels and drank under the water tables at night, where we would beat snowstorms to death with flashlights and proclaim republics on the accumulated evidence of road salt and body-counted shadow puppets. We wore intestinal flora on our sleeves as a countermeasure against the invisible hand of decompositional self-interest. We hung out with stray dogs who did all our terrifying for us. The one with three legs limped along like a pitchfork, its tines tuned to the hiss of escaped air from pierced plastic balls. Back and forth its head swung, ripping apart a cloud or a man's shirt. That was Call to Arms by... Adam Dickinson.
We are delighted to have had the opportunity to record at the Green Words Green Worlds Conference and hope that the material we've presented in distilled form as a podcast allows those who are in attendance an opportunity to revisit the discussions and ideas of the weekend in new ways. For those who are not there, we hope that through listening to this episode, you can begin to imagine the energy, community, and creativity that the conference fostered. Either way, we hope that the opinions, research, stories, and poetry featured in this episode have provided an opportunity for our listeners to reconsider the place of literature in their everyday lives and to look towards literature and art as an integral part of environmental politics. Stay tuned to the Coherence iTunes feed for a mini-episode featuring the poetry and stories from the Green Words, Green Worlds Conference, reimagined as sound art. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Thanks, Thanks to, to the Green the Words, Green, Green Worlds, Worlds Green organizers, organizers, Kate Sandilands, and Ella Soper, conference, conference keynotes, Molly, Molly Wallace, Wallace, Adam Dickinson, Anne Milne, Brian, Brian Bartlett, Bartlett, Armand Garnett-Rufo, and, and Rita Wong for, for speaking with us. With us. Thanks to all of the conference conference participants participants. who took the time to come and chat with us at our talk table. Especially Especially Janine McLeod, Peter Timmerman, Catherine Komorowski, Edie Steiner, Steiner, Augustine Augustine Georgi, and Ben Ben Garrels. Thanks to our musical contributors, Allegra Records, Pants Productions. Uh, I am Augustine Georgi, a visiting scholar at York University. So the conference has been a very rich one. And I sat in as a keen observer to measure the temperature of eco-poetics in Canada. And it's been a very rich experience and wonderful. Um, all the presenters were incredible. It's a really hard call to know which workshop to go to. Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel very privileged to be part of this. And obviously, as you can see, we've had a great turnout. And people are really excited. And what's your name? Oh, I'm Evie. I'm here because I'm presenting tomorrow, and I would be here anyways if I wasn't presenting. In our next episode, we'll be working with guest producer Michelle Zabo to bring you a look at the relationship between food and social inequality. In order to really seize power in the world, I would like to take control of Oprah's book club. What what was I thinking during it? Um, Where are my keynotes? Uh, Has everybody got enough to eat? Is the AV working? Um, Are there enough chairs? Why is the store not not unlocked yet? Um, Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and send us feedback on the show. This episode was produced by Andrew Mark and Amanda DiBattista, and the fantastic sound design was done by Andrew Nolan. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence, and coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E.
E-N-C-E.